0: right. So great to see you guys today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, this morning marks the halfway point uh, through our study of the New Testament book, First Timothy. It's really a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young uh, leader uh, named uh, Timothy. If you were here uh, last week, I'm so glad to see that you came back again. Uh, we uh, kind of buckled up. You guys listened to me preach for like 45 minutes as we made our way through what probably is, if it's not the most, it's one of the most hotly contested, uh, debated, contentious passages in all of the New Testament. Today is not going to be as hotly debated. It's not going to be as contentious. There's going to be a lot of uh, hopefully fun moments, some really practical moments, helpful moments in our discipleship journey, our better understanding of Jesus. And yet, there will be things in today's sermon that answer some of the questions that you guys have asked of me that uh, answers some of the questions that some of us have about our recent uh, decision that was put forth by our elder board, that women may serve in and occupy all positions of leadership uh, in our church. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, would you take out a Bible and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3? If you want to use your phone, use your phone, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be talking about that a lot today. But before we go to that chapter, your turn in there, I want to remind us of what we're calling our theme verse. Uh, of 1 Timothy. As I read all of 1 Timothy, I think this verse it does a great job of, of tying it all together. I'd love it if you memorize it. The Apostle Paul wrote, watch your life and doctrine closely. Your life, the things that you know to be true, watch them closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We get this, you know this, that what we believe and what we teach is monumentally important. And the life that we live is monumentally important. And because you guys are wise, because you're intelligent, you already know this. It's just not enough to preach and teach, is it? Because even if we preach and teach perfectly, that is not what's passed on to the next generation. That's not what's passed on to our kids. That's not passed on to those who are coming behind us. What is passed on to them is this, the real content of our life, who we really are. That's what gets passed on. And, and that's what's behind our serious thesis. We teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And we get it, we know both are monumentally important, but they're not equal in impact. Our example always has greater impact than what we teach. And anybody who's ever invested in kids, anybody who's ever tried to raid kids, you get this, right? You know this from experience. It doesn't matter if we teach them perfectly, if we communicate to our kids perfectly, if we do the opposite one time, what's the story our kids tell? What do they want to talk about? Do your kids go like this? Hey dad, I just I remember that time you were so awesome. Is that the story they tell? Not my kids, hey, you remember that time you did that dumb thing? (laughs) That's what my kids want to talk about and laugh. That's just the way it is, that's what we remember. I bet you're that way too. If your boss says all the right things but does the opposite, what do you weight more heavily? Words or actions? If your financial advisor does all the right things, says all the right things, I mean, but models the opposite, what do you weigh more heavily? Words or actions? How about political leaders? If a political leader says all the right things, but models the opposite, come on, I got one more. Can I ask one more? We just started, I can ask one more. When a church says all the right things, but models the opposite. What do non-believers, what do outsiders, what do they weight more heavily? Our words or our actions? We teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And what do we know? We know that we've got, we've got the greatest story in the world. We've got the greatest message in the world that we've all messed up. We know that we're sinners. You don't have to tell me your story, and I don't have time to tell you my story. But if we told each other our stories, if we like, we had all the guts in the world, we would just tell how we messed it up. But God, in His graciousness and His kindness, has forgiven us and made a way through what Jesus did on the cross, and He proved it through the resurrection. And he is our head and we're now connected to him and we have new life in him. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that good news? And we're not just connected to him. When we are connected to Christ, we're connected to each other. We're inseparably connected to each other. And we're gonna disagree. I don't know if you know this news, we're gonna disagree about all kinds of stuff. But that's okay because we're not just connected to Christ, we're connected to each other in inseparable ways. And all the things that make us different don't divide us because we're now one in Christ and we're growing in love and maturity together because we're connected to him. So here's my here's my question. And it's not just like a today question. It's a it's an all the time question. Are we going to just teach the gospel or are we going to teach and model the gospel? See, that's the kind of question that I think the Apostle Paul is intending for people to be thinking about as a result of reading First Timothy. This is the kind of question that, that I think is just healthy and wise to be thinking about all the time in our Christian life as we're trying to follow Jesus. Today, that's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 is about. It's not just about teaching what you know, but it's also about who we are. And it starts with leaders. It it includes everybody, but it starts with leaders in the church. And we're going to read through this. I'm going to ask you to, to think about this question. Which gets more emphasis as we read 1 Timothy chapter 3 together? Being a good teacher or being a good example? So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. There's three words used to describe uh, leadership position in the church that we commonly call pastor, elder, overseer, and pastor. Those are three distinct terms that are used interchangeably, all to describe the same leadership position, elder, overseer, pastor. It's all the same thing. Whoever aspires, whoever aspires to that, desires a noble task. The emphasis in the New Testament is always on responsibility, not position. It's the way of the world to emphasize position and title. The way of Jesus emphasizes responsibility. Now, the overseer, the leader, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. That word respect just keeps coming up over and over. It's important. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with clear conscience. You know, we're going to talk just briefly a little bit later about deacons. You might have questions about that. Um, And then it says this, um, In the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything, right now our church understandably is having a kind of a big public conversation and it's going to keep going about men and women in leadership. And this is a safe place. You're allowed to disagree. You can totally disagree and still be fully welcomed and wanted here in a full part of our church. But wherever you land on your understanding is the best way to understand uh, women in leadership. For what it's worth, Paul wanted to make sure that women were included in this conversation. It goes back to deacons. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well, gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Jesus Christ. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you these instructions, so that, these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. How we live, who we are, massively important. God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he just ends by putting a big old spotlight on Jesus. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. I want to start here today um, just by focusing on The the leadership qualities that should be evident, should be expected, that you should count on by those who lead in the church. These are what we're going to talk about today. We're going to run through them a little bit later. And I I just, I got to be honest with you. Let me just say this first. Regardless of whether you've been in this church for 50 years or five minutes, you have permission, you have every right to expect this from the leaders in our church, you have every right to expect this from me, you have every right to expect this from every one of our pastors, Pastor Judy Quinn was just introduced today, you get to expect that from her, you get to expect that from all of our elders. These are the non-negotiables of what leadership is in the church, and I'm going to stand up here today and I'm going to do my best to talk about it, i got to say, this I kind of feel exposed as I'm talking to you about this because even though I believe in these things and I aspire to these things, I don't think I'm necessarily a poster child for all of these things. But this is it. And leadership is pretty great. And the way of leadership following Jesus is pretty great. But I think what you'll see as we talk about this, it's not about greatness, is it? Leadership isn't about greatness. Here's the first thing I want us to talk about who is this for? Is this really for everybody or is this just for a few people? Aspiring to this, what do you think? Is it just for those who have positions of leadership or is this for everybody? You, oh, you guys think it's everybody, all right. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Does whoever really mean whoever? Whoever. In order to be able to see the truth and acknowledge the truth and follow the truth it really depends on which side of this window that we choose to stand on right standing on this side of the window super easy standing on this side of the window takes a bit more effort and discipline you probably have no idea what i'm talking about yet but i'll explain but real fast, let me just kind of check in and make sure we we agree on something. Do you guys agree with me? Have you guys learned this in life, that the things that come easiest to you are almost never the best and wisest thing? Like the thing that comes easiest to us is almost never what's good for us? Like that's true for you too? All right. The easy side of the window is this. I see God's word and I read God's word and I evaluate God's word through the window of all of my experiences, through the window of all of my kind of preloaded beliefs and perspectives and what other people have told me, all of my experiences with church, all of my experiences in the world, all of my experiences with leadership. And I read and I evaluate God's word through all the things that I bring with me. That is the easiest thing in the world to do. And guess what? Super normal, but not good for us standing on the better side, it takes a little bit of work, it takes some discipline, is God's word is the window through which I see all of my life experiences. God's word is the window through which I see and evaluate all of my expectations, all of my preloaded ideas, all of my experiences in church, all of my experiences in the world, all of my experiences with leadership. God's word is the window through which I see And evaluate that, but here's the deal. Standing over here is the easy side. Does that make sense? Like, do I sound like a crazy man? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Like, if you choose, if you're just like, I don't want to do the work. You do the work. That's what we pay you for. If you want to stand on the easy side, I promise you, you're going to read your biases into the text you're gonna read your preloaded beliefs and your biases into the text. If you came today, and you want, if you're standing on the easy side, and you already believe and it's your bias that there should be no restrictions on women and leadership in the church, I promise you you're gonna see it in the text whether it's there or not. If you wanna stand on the easy side, and you came today with preloaded beliefs and biases that there should be restrictions on women in the church, I promise you you're gonna see it in the text whether it's there or not. And what I'm asking, what I'm asking is let's stand on this, let's stand on this side. Let's do the work. And today I'm going to share some information. Maybe you already know. Maybe for some of you it's new and when we hear new information that could be kind of fun and it could be exciting and you're like, yeah, I love learning. But sometimes we get new information and it contradicts what we already thought. Has anybody ever had that experience? Does that feel awesome? No! Sometimes it feels threatening. And that's just a normal human experience. And when that happens, we have a choice to make. We can choose defensiveness or curiosity. You still with me? We can choose defensiveness or curiosity. I'm saying let's choose curiosity. Curiosity. Let's say no to defensiveness. And today, I'm asking you, and this is like, I think this should be an all-the-time thing. I'm asking you to think like a scientist, not like a sniper. See, this is what a scientist, this is a scientist way of thinking. See all the information, receive all the information, process all the information. And at the end of doing that, if you've got to change the way, you've got to change your belief, then do it. Maybe you do all of that, and you don't have to change your belief, but you're gonna take in all the information and process it, take it, even the scary information, you're gonna take it seriously. I come to a conclusion. It's kind of think like a scientist. Thinking like a sniper is, if there's anything that contradicts what I already believe, I'm gonna shoot that down. Right? To think like a scientist requires humility and courage. All that's required to think like a sniper It's pride and fear. Now, there is a technical term. There's a technical term for thinking like a sniper, and that term is confirmation bias. We only receive information that affirms our view. We reject information that contradicts our view. Have you ever heard someone say, you only hear what you want to hear? Like I know no one's ever said that about you, but you've probably heard somebody say that about somebody else, right? That's what that is. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be a pastor, elder, overseer, leader in the church, desires a noble task. Does whoever really mean whoever? You guys know sometimes I like to share with you what words mean in the Greek. Do you know what, do you know what this word in Greek, it sounds like this, tis, do you know what it, do you know what it means in Greek? Whoever. It is literally the broadest most inclusive pronoun available. If the Apostle Paul, if the Apostle Paul really meant just the dudes, it would have been so easy for him to say that, but he didn't. I want you to imagine with me that I send a text message out to all the high school students who are in our church's database, and the text message says this, whoever wants to be a paid summer intern and work for Autumn Ridge this summer, come to a meeting with me. And so a bunch of high school students come to a meeting, and when they show up, I just let the guys in, and I send all the girls home. Am I going to get in trouble? Are parents going to be mad at me? Yeah, and I deserve it. And out of all the things that are said to me, I guarantee you this is what somebody would say, why did you say whoever when you just meant the boys? I want to remind us of First Timothy, chapter one, verse five. The Apostle Paul says the goal of this command is what? The whole goal of everything he's writing in this letter is love. Jesus said all of Scripture can be distilled down to this one word: love. Love God with all of who we are, and love our neighbor as ourselves. If the Apostle Paul said "whoever," which is the broadest, most inclusive pronoun available to him in the Greek language. If he said whoever, but he really only meant the guys, I can understand why somebody would say, that feels passive-aggressive, that feels rude, that feels tone-deaf. I don't think that's what he's doing, but I can understand why somebody would feel that way. Now, when we read this, you're going to count no less than 10 masculine pronouns in the chapter we just read, especially verses 1 through 7. 10. 10 masculine pronouns. He, 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 he should, over and over again. And so we read that, and it's like, well, it kind of seems like the Apostle Paul is just talking to guys, right? Well, at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we're talking about these qualities, church leadership. In English, 10 masculine pronouns. In Greek, how many? What's that number? There are zero masculine pronouns. In the Greek, He uses the pronoun whoever, the broadest, most inclusive pronoun available, and then does not use any other pronouns following that. And we might be wondering, well, why are there pronouns when we read it? Well, because when you translate from one language into another, sometimes it can feel clunky, and sometimes we have to add words to convey the meaning and to make it smooth, and if we don't have pronouns in there as we read, it just sounds weird and funky and clunky. Does that make sense? Anybody who knows more than one language understands what I'm talking about. And in our language, we do not have gender-neutral pronouns. It's one of the reasons people are fighting over the word they. Can I use the word they when I'm just talking about one person when I don't want to be gender-specific? So some translations actually use they. (laughs) And in Greek, and it's, just, it's just not there. He uses the broadest, most inclusive pronoun available. Then there are no pronouns left. We read them in our language to make reading smooth. And that's okay. So the focus, the focus really is on the leadership qualities, not on gender. So let's focus on those leadership qualities. A leader should be above reproach. If his or her character were on trial, if an accusation was made and his or her character was on trial, the verdict would be not guilty it doesn't mean that no one ever makes accusations it just means that you know what you can't when you really look into it there's nothing there they're above reproach faithful to his wife if married this is what this means if married his or her heart and body is fully and exclusively given to just one person I think a bunch of you guys know that there was a team of us in Ghana last month and we went into a village and Pastor Otis preached in this village. Over a hundred people in this village decided to follow Jesus. It was awesome. Pastor Otis did a great job preaching and sharing the gospel. They asked for a church to be planted. It was wonderful. Now, in the aftermath of all of that, this is super normal. When you go into a village and you preach, they'll give you, as a way of appreciation, like a a bundle of yams, which are delicious. Um, They'll give you a chicken. If you do a really good job, they'll give you a bird called a guinea fowl. Um, But on this day, this village elder stood up, is so appreciative to Pastor Otis and, and how he shared. He asked him, would you like one of the single women from the village as a wife? <laughs> of course, Pastor Otis is already married, so you know he said no. He did say, can I see her first? But just, that's a joke, that's a joke, that, that's a joke. That didn't, that didn't happen. You know, he's happily married and he was gracious and quick with his no. That did happen. <laughs> now, this is, one, this is the one. This is the one. And a bunch of you guys have questions about it. This is the one. This seems like you got to be a dude to be a husband to one wife. Let me show you what this looks like in Greek. Mias, gunakos, andra. It means one woman, man. This was a colloquialism in Greek that meant faithful to one person in marriage. It meant monogamous. There is an equivalent feminine expression or expression for the women that literally translates one man, woman. But this is the way language works. This is the way Greek language works. This is the way our language works. When you're talking to men and women at the same time, like I'm doing, when you're writing to men and women at the same time, you can use the masculine to apply to both. How many legal documents have you read that said he but it really means he or she. How many job descriptions have you read that say he, but it really means he or she? How many news articles, how many things have you read in your life that says he, but it really means he or she? That's how language works. That's how the Greek language works. This expression right here was used to describe both men and women when talking to a mixed gendered audience. Let me just say this. If you were raised to believe that this meant that it had to be only a man, I don't, if I'm you, I don't know that I'm convinced yet. And that's okay. I want to introduce you to a guy named Tom Schreiner. He is a good dude, he is a brilliant New Testament scholar. Um, if there is a Mount Rushmore of biblical scholars who believe that women should be restricted from leadership, he's on it. If he's not the most, he's one of the top three most trusted scholars from that viewpoint. I want you to hear what he says about this passage. He says, the requirements for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and a corresponding passage, Titus 1, 6-9, including the statement that they are to be one-woman men does not necessarily in and of itself preclude women from serving as elders. Now, I never want to play fast and loose with quotes. And I certainly don't want to play fast and loose when quoting someone who disagrees with me. Like, if you read him, he'll present his case... For why he thinks I'm wrong. But it's not for what we read in this chapter. Biblical scholars on both sides say, listen, it doesn't mean that it's just men. It actually applies to men and can apply to women too. If you were here last week, do you guys remember this? The circles of context? It's kind of just, If we just take it straightforward, a plain reading of the text, and we think it seems like it should only be men, I want to ask, does that fit with the context of the immediate chapter? And I want us to think about it this way. Because if this excludes women from leadership, do you know who else it excludes? Single men. Because it doesn't say man. It's talking about how you are in a relationship. So it excludes single men. Was the guy who wrote this married or single? He was single. So the guy who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, if we're supposed to understand it that way, then he's excluded from leadership. The guy who's writing to Timothy, it's widely believed that he was single. That means he would be excluded from leadership. If you expand out to other things that the same author wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish you all would be single like I am so you're more available for ministry. How could it be that being single makes you more available for ministry, but less available to lead in ministry. I just, it doesn't make sense. And if leaders have to be married men, who else is excluded from leadership of the church? I'm curious, have you ever heard of a gentleman named Jesus? Not married. It's just incoherent. It's incoherent to understand this to mean you have to be a married man. What this means is monogamous, faithful to your spouse, exclusively giving your heart and your body to one person in marriage alone. Temperate. He or she is level-headed and a clear thinker. Do you guys think we got enough clear-thinking, level-headed leaders in our world today? We need more of that. Self-controlled, he or she is not mastered by impulses, desires, or habits. Respectable, people in the church can trust, can trust this leader. I've been really excited to talk about this word, hospitable. And if you're wondering why do we describe it this way, he or she has a heart for strangers because the word hospitable or hospitality, it looks like this in Greek. This sounds like Philo, and this sounds like Xenon, Phila Xenon. Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love, because phila, that's it, uh, it's love. It's brotherly kind of love. This word literally means love. This word literally means stranger or foreigner. It brings these two words together. Hospitality is love for the stranger. It's love for the foreigner. It is having because of Christ and what Jesus has done in you, and because understanding that God's heart beats for folks who are strangers and foreigners and treated like another. Our hearts are calibrated to beat for others, especially those who everybody treats like another. That's hospitality. It can mean that you're really great at cooking dinner and invite people over. But it's so much bigger than that. It has a heart that's calibrated to other people, especially people who are vulnerable and strangers and foreigners who others treat as different. A leader should be able to teach. It's interesting, it it doesn't say a great speaker able to teach and what this is about if he or she can explain scripture in a way that is clear memorable and applicable don't have to be a great speaker and i say that as a guy who i like i like i want to get better at the skills and the competencies of communication but that's not what this is about And this is said, and I think part of the genius of this is we are all suckers to trust and give greater influence to people who sound good as they speak, not necessarily based on what they say when they speak. And the whole emphasis is that we are not enamored with the one who speaks. We're not excited about the one who speaks. We're excited about the one who they are speaking about. They help us better see Jesus. And when they teach, better understand God's Word in a way that we can remember it and apply it to our lives. Not given to drunkenness. If he or she drinks, he or she drinks responsibly and has the ability to say no to their self. I want to attempt to be temperate for a second and model and do a little clear thinking. Can we do some clear thinking together? I'm going to do my best here and to not sound like a dummy. When it says not given to drunkenness, what is the, what's being implied here? That they do drink alcohol. If drinking alcohol was off limits, you, would, you wouldn't say not given to drunkenness, you would say not given to drinking. It, what is allowed is that they are drinking alcohol. But let me ask you, would you take this to mean, therefore, a leader in the church must drink alcohol? That's what a weird thing to conclude. Nobody's like, listen, I only want a pastor who drinks, because you know... I need him sauced. We don't think that. Nobody says that. What a weird thing. Let's go back to what we were talking about, faithful to his wife, one woman man. If you are in the camp, and maybe I haven't persuaded you, and that's totally okay. But if you're in the camp and think, nope, I think that means have to be married. Have to be married, right? Um, It has to be a man who's married. That way of thinking would also demand that leaders also have to be drinkers. No, it's if you are a drinker, you are incredibly responsible and you're not given to to, to drunkenness. If you are married, you are faithful. When we are reading and understanding God's word, it's important to be consistent with how we do so. Not violent, but gentle. His or her strength is under control and is deployed for you, never against you. Have you guys seen this photo? <laughs> even if you didn't watch the Super Bowl, you probably saw this. And it's not this is Travis Kelsey, and he was not doing well. He had one catch for one yard, and he's mad, and in the first half is not going well. He's hot, and I don't want to judge him. I get it. You know, I felt the same way about my fantasy football team this year. I understand being upset. But he got in his coach's face. He was all angry and even knocked him off balance. This is strength not under control. Certainly don't want to judge him. Last week, he went on a podcast with his brother, and he just said, I was wrong. I crossed a line that should never be crossed. Um, I was way out of line. But I want to tell you the story that he told. He said that he went to the bench and sat down, and later the coach came up to him, and he was expecting his coach, Andy Reid, to chew him out. But The coach walked up to him and said, hey, I love your passion. We've got a lot of cameras on us right now, and I just don't want this to come across Badly. Strength out of control, strength under control. And if you know him, he already has off the charts love and respect for his coach. And it went even higher after that. Let me ask you do you ever get tired of people having their strength under control with you? Do you ever get tired of gentleness? Can we all use more of that in our life? How about the people who you lead? And even if you don't lead people, the people that you interact with, do you think they would benefit from more strength under control that's deployed for them and not against them? Do you think that they would benefit from more gentleness from you and from me? In the way of Jesus, those who have influence, those who have authority, those who have power, are to be gentle not quarrelsome. I think this is one of the things that's required to not be quarrelsome. It means that he or she doesn't have to win and can be okay with being misunderstood. This is a tough one. It's a tough one for me. Doesn't have to win and can be okay with being misunderstood. Not a lover of money. He or she is not greedy. Not under the influence of money. And not under the influence of those who have lots of money. They're able to manage their own family well. His or her spouse and kids don't get the leftovers. How many of us, how many of us want a pastor, want a small group leader, want an elder, want somebody who's serving and leading in ministry to be so engrossed in that that their spouse and their kids are paying the price? Who wants that? Let's just look around real fast. Survey says zero. But it's easy to do that. At the end of your life, what would it mean to you if the people who you care about the most, if they described you this way, they never gave me their leftovers. They only gave me their best. Would that mean a lot to you? In the way of Jesus, in the way of Jesus, we don't treat people and relationships as expendable. They're not to be a recent convert he or she has a long track record of devotion to Jesus. We talked about this, this last week. First learn, then lead. First learn, then lead. We can't share what we don't have. You can't share what you don't have. You can't share patience if you don't have patience. And so we got to learn we gotta grow, we gotta mature, we gotta develop in Christ likeness first before we're in a position where we can take on leadership and authority and organizational power and all of that kind of stuff. Because you know what? You know what we need from our leaders most? We need their Christ likeness. We don't need their skill sets, we don't need their giftedness, we don't need the things that they're, off, that they're awesome at most. Those things are wonderful and we want those things, but what we need most from each other. Is Christ likeness. Do you agree? Yeah. Have a good reputation with outsiders, non-believers who who don't follow Jesus, may not agree with him or her, but they trust, they trust him or her. These are the leadership qualities, these are the these are the non-negotiables, these are the things that all of us we should expect, we should look for, and when they're missing leaders should be held accountable for those things not being there. Today we don't have time to talk about holding people accountable. We're going to talk about that in week seven. How do you do that? That's week seven. Come back. Come back for that. Right now we just want to highlight this is, this is leadership in the way of Jesus. It's pretty great, but it's not about greatness. One of the other Areas of leadership in the church is talked about as is deacons and man, I have gone longer than we have time available. Let me just be super brief. Some of read Acts chapter six and you'll find out why deacons were created. There were real ministry needs that needed to be responded for too, and, and, and the leaders in the church who were responsible for prayer and teaching, they didn't have the margin to do all of those things. And so deacons were raised up and instituted to make sure that ministry needs were met. It'd be totally understandable if some, if some of you asked, why doesn't our church have deacons? I don't know that I got a great answer for that. Somewhere around 20 years ago, kind of the position of deacon went away at Autumn Ridge. That was way before I got here. I, I can't speak intelligently about that. So we don't have deacons, but maybe we do. I want to share with you um, a perspective from a biblical scholar, super sharp, easy, easy to read and understand. His name is Nijay Gupta, and his scholarship. This is this is how he's concluded. This is how he thinks would be helpful to think about the biblical position of deacons. He says the term deacon might give the wrong impression that this was some sort of formal office. The generic term meaning servant can also be misleading because writers like Paul were using diakonos, that's the singular Greek version of uh, deacon, sometimes in reference to a form of leadership. I want to propose a new translation, ministry provider. So ministry provider is meant to communicate that deacons desire to care for and serve people, And they presumably had some experience, training, and gifting that established their authority and status to be recognized and respected. From that perspective, we may not call anybody deacons, but we have hundreds of deacons in our church. The people who are serving and leading in kids' ministry right now, the people who serve on and lead ministry teams, the small group leaders that we have in our church are doing that kind of ministry. And for those of you who are engaged in that sort of thing, our congregation, our church owes you our appreciation and our admiration. I want you to know you have it from me. And here's the deal. Please hear me say this. Ministry happens up close. It doesn't happen from a microphone. It happens up close. And you're doing that. You are providing ministry. Real quick, this is how Paul ends the chapter. He says... I hope to come to you soon. This is the whole reason I'm writing you, so that people will know how you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. And then he ends with just celebrating Jesus in the gospel. He says I'm going to start right here. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. I just love how Paul, every chapter thus far in 1 Timothy, he just hammers home the gospel. He does what we call gospel fluency. Identify the content of the gospel, understand the implications of the gospel, and apply gospel motivation. Look at Jesus. Look at how wonderful he is. Look at what he's done for us. And now this is how we live in response to that. And our motivation is love. How are we supposed to conduct ourselves? Just to recap, chapter one, everything we do is motivated by love. And when we have to hold people accountable, when we have to engage people who are wrong, even grievously wrong, we engage them with grace and the truth in the same way Jesus did for us. Moving into chapter two, we are humble, submissive people. We're oriented towards a peaceful, quiet life. And we pray with gratitude for leaders who are over us, even if we don't like them. And men, when we show up with our physical postures, we communicate we are here for humble peace. That's what praying with lifted hands is about. You don't have to literally do that, but with our bodies, we communicate we're here, we're showing up for humility and peace. Ladies, when you show up in the way that you dress and the way that you carry yourselves, you show up saying, I'm here for humility and peace. We're all learners, continuing working through chapter two, we're all learners. Men and women have equal access to education because learning the truth and remembering the truth is what protects us from deception. And none of us, none of us strong arm anybody. It's not okay for anybody to usurp authority or to try to domineer. And he talked about women, you're facing childbirth and you're afraid you can trust in Jesus. This is how this applies to all of us. No matter what we're facing, no matter if it scares us, we trust Jesus. And now, whatever influence we have, whatever authority we have, whatever power we might have, in all the ways that we handle that, we want to reflect Jesus and live out the truth and the goodness of the gospel. And this isn't just for a few people. You guys already said it, you know it's for everybody. Leadership is the destination of discipleship. Wednesday night was our Ash Wednesday service. A couple showed up, first time ever, to our church and um, their common story, common story in our town, they're here from out of town, they were going uh, through medical appointments at Mayo and they got bad news and it shook them deep. They happened to have a nurse who attends Autumn Ridge and that nurse prayed with them and invited them to come to to the Ash Wednesday service. And after the service, they went up to to Pastor Caleb because he's the one who gave the sermon that night and they just wanted him to know because of that nurse who prayed for us and he invited us and, and after what we experienced tonight in the service, we know that we're gonna be okay. And we're at peace. You know what that was? That nurse, whoever he was, was not content to just teach the gospel talk about the gospel but lived the gospel whoever desires to lead in the gospel desires a noble task may we be people, men and women who are compelled by the love of Jesus to exercise and use whatever influence we have to love Jesus and to love others well You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for inviting us into your way of love. Would you help us to say no to the ugly sides of leadership, that we would say yes to you in all things. And whatever measure of influence and authority and power we have, may we be like Jesus who has given us new life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.